This is James Cooper with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat and Southland District with your Extension Crop Report. We are nearly towards the end of the soybean growing season. In a couple of short weeks, the senescing process should begin. Fields in the northern side of Kansas and Missouri have already started, likely being in Group 3s and early 4s, and our late 4s and Group 5s are not far behind. Still, it is unlikely to see some parts of the field, or some entire fields yellowing prematurely, even though other green fields are in the same soybean maturity group. There can be a number of reasons that the causes lead to this premature yellowing, and it's something seen in nearly every year, at least in some areas. The primary cause this year is likely to be differences in soil moisture and growth across the field. Even if there is some water in the soil profile now, the lack of water during critical growth periods leads to some of the areas of the field being slowed down in growth. These will tend on hill slopes or in different soil types. At this point in the growth cycle, soybeans are shunting nutrients from the plant into the beans as the pods fill. Some plants don't have much to give, so they are yellowing much quicker. This is also the same reason why some areas of lower nutrients or overly acidic pHs can cause the same premature yellowing. Another common cause related to both soil moisture and nutrients is soil compaction. Areas of compaction that lead to difficult root growth will have similar effects. These compacted areas are more likely in channel and field edges that have been worked wet in previous years. So, at least when it comes to environmental causes of premature soybean yellowing, it could be nearly any major soil or water difference between the yellow areas and the rest of the still green field. Besides the more soil intrinsic causes, other reasons could be more disease related. These are less likely to be big areas of the field, but within small areas that tend to be problematic. Bifloidia stem rot is common, but prefers areas of the fields that tend to be wetter or collect water. This disease can lead to seedlings dying soon after germination, yellowing during pod formation, or it can wait until now before these symptoms become obvious on a large enough scale to be noticed. Charcoal rot is another disease that causes premature yellowing. This disease favors the dry weather that we've had this year, but oddly enough, most soybean pathology samples I've seen tested this year have come back positive for defloidia rather than charcoal rot. Yellowing can be caused by herbicide damage, but this isn't likely to be a primary cause, even the fields that are touched by Tecamba drift. An over-application of glyphosate can cause what is known as a yellow flash, and at times, this can be delayed a few weeks after the herbicide was applied under drought conditions. Still, this is unlikely at this point because most herbicide applications stopped over a month ago, and this would affect full fields. So, if areas of the soybean field are turning prematurely, it is probably related to soil nutrients or moisture. It is too late for an accurate tissue nutrient test, but a late season soil test could help explain or at least eliminate one of the possible causes. If you have any questions about problem areas in your fields, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent from the Wildcat Extension District. Advancements in equipment and technology have made it easier than ever to take livestock to feed instead of bringing the feed to them, which saves producers time and money. When grazing corn residue, cattle will select and eat the grain first, and then the husk and leaf, and finally the cob and stalk. 
Unless the cornfield has experienced high winds, leaving a lot of corn left in the field, there's usually less than a bushel of eardrop per acre. The husk and leaf diet will provide around 50% total digestible nutrients and about 5% crude protein. Weather is the major factor that determines the number of grazing days. Cows can successfully graze corn residue fields that have 4 to 6 inches of snow cover, but they can't graze fields that are covered with ice. The leaf and husk yield left in the field is related to corn grain yield. The amount of grain, leaf, and husk available will determine the forage quality. There's about 16 pounds of dry leaf and husk material per bushel of corn yield. You'll want to keep your livestock from consuming the lowest quality stalks and cobs, and some dry matter is lost to trampling or weathering, so assume 50% harvest efficiency. To figure your stocking density, you can use a simple rule of thumb for quick estimates. Bushels per acre divided by 3.5 equals grazing days per acre for a 1,200-pound cow. So if the field yields 150 bushels per acre, divide 150 by 3.5 and, and you get 42.8. So you have enough residue for about 42 grazing days. There are more exact formulas available if this sounds a little too close to cowboy math for you. And the University of Nebraska has created a fairly easy to use corn stock grazing calculator. Ordinarily, dry cows will maintain body weight and may even gain weight using these strategies. Research out of Nebraska suggests that March Kevin cows didn't change reproductive performance or body condition score whether or not these cows receive supplemented protein. The need for protein supplement may change, though, through the grazing season, depending on the gestation phase. Salt, mineral, and vitamin A supplements are recommended for all cattle grazing crop residues. It's advisable to test the crops for nitrates before grazing, especially if it's been drought stressed. Nitrate toxicity problems can range from reduced appetite to death if not monitored and managed. Nitrate presence can be quick tested in the field and a measurement of the level of nitrates in the plant can be lab tested. As an added bonus for the more economical grazing, cows will return nutrients to the land in the form of manure, and they'll eat corn grain that's fallen to the ground, which may reduce the amount of volunteer corn in a field the following year. For more information on grazing corn residue, or for testing nitrates, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, natural resource and diversified ag agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the agriculture and natural resource agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Bats are unique and interesting animals, with their nocturnal nature making them one of the more mysterious animals in Kansas. However, during this time of year, bats become more active, which means that homeowners and pet owners should take notice if bats are seen in their area. According to the Center of Disease Control, bats are the leading transmitter of rabies. Kansas State University veterinarian Susan Nelson states that because bats are more active this time of year, there is an increased chance of exposure to them. 
While bats are an important part of the ecosystem and most bats are harmless, it is important to remember that in certain situations, bats can be a threat to the health of both people and animals, and any contact people or animals have with bats needs to be taken seriously. If you find a bat in your home or on your property, Nelson recommends having the bat tested for rabies as a precaution in the following situations. When you are scratched or bitten by a bat, when you handle a bat with your bare hands, if you were to wake up and find a bat in your room, when unattended young children are found in the same room as a bat, when mentally disabled or intoxicated people are found in a room with a bat. If you find a bat in your residence, it is recommended that you carefully catch the bat without touching it and take it to your local veterinarian for rabies testing submission. Possible exposure to rabies is an urgent event, but not an emergency in most situations. This means that one can typically wait to receive post-exposure treatment until after the testing results are in. When it comes to pets, the best way to protect pets from bat exposure is to keep their rabies vaccinations current, Nelson said, adding that it is also important for indoor-only pets as bats are often found in houses. If there's a possibility a pet was exposed to a bat, it should be taken to a veterinarian within 96 hours to get a rabies booster if the bat was unavailable for testing, Nelson recommends. If the bat is available for testing, there's time to wait and see if a rabies booster is needed. It is important to respect bats and the role they play in the environment, but also take possible exposure to bats seriously. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. A pin oak in Pittsburgh was recently nominated to Kansas's Champion Tree Program. The Champion Tree Program is run by the Kansas Forest Service and Volunteers and tracks the largest trees of each species in the state. Volunteers use a formula to determine the number of points a tree is worth using the measurements of circumference at breast height, the total height of the tree, and the crown spread of the tree divided by four. Crown spread is the length of the outermost branch to the outermost branch on the other side of the canopy, measured in two different directions. These measurements are then added together to determine the total points of the tree. Each champion tree has the most points for its species in the state. There are five champion trees in southeastern Kansas. Blackjack oak, water oak, post oak, shellbark hickory, and eastern red cedar. The formula for determining points is standardized between state champion tree programs in order to designate a national champion for each species of tree. Kansas has two national champion trees, a western soapberry tree in Johnson County and a Texas red oak in Shawnee County. If you think you might have a potential state champion tree, submit a nomination to your state's forest service with these measurements and volunteers will confirm these measurements. Having a state champion tree is a good way to show the importance of trees in our landscapes and ecosystems. 
Several wild fruit trees have fruit that are coming ready to be harvested if you can find them out in the wild. Pawpaws are the most current, with their fruit ripening in the next two to three weeks. Pawpaws are understory trees that grow in the shade of other, larger trees, often oaks. These trees are typically found along waterways, where they form clonal stands known as patches. These fruits were massively important to the residents of the Appalachian region, but with food accessibility higher than ever, the need to forage these native fruits has decreased. The only way you will ever try these fruits is gathering them from the wild. Although there have been attempts to produce pawpaws commercially in states like Kentucky, the fruits are too delicate and ripen too quickly to be commercially marketable. Pawpaws are about the size and shape of a mango, pale green on the outside. The inner flesh can range from a custard yellow to off-white to white, depending on the particular tree. And people who try it often call the taste of the fruit similar to a banana. Commercial varieties have been bred to be as little as 3% seed and 97% flesh. Foraged pawpaws, on the other hand, can be as high as 50% seed and 50% flesh. But pawpaw seeds are incredibly large and easy to remove from the fruit. If you find a tree with fruit on it, the fruit will not be ripe until it can fall off the branch with the swift kick of the tree's trunk. Take the fruit home and enjoy them raw, or freeze the pulp to store for the future. Pulp can be kept for up to six months frozen. For help with champion tree nominations, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.